0: 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, through six from the NRSV. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of Jesus. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to have the chance to see you all again and to talk to you all again. Uh, for those of you that haven't had the opportunity uh, to speak in a role like this, you've also not had the responsibility of trying to follow Ali Lee and Rajan and Rexan. And so I'm going to do the best I can, but those are tough acts to follow. Um, but it is always a blessing to get to see you guys and, and talk to you guys. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today. Uh, I'll, well, I'll apologize right off of the outset that there's not going to be much in the way of all plays here today. I am going to try and connect Jesus and light, and the Incredible Hulk, and Michael Jackson's Thriller video. So, if that's not enough to get you to stick around, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. So, buckle up. This is going to be hopefully a fun one. Um, I want to say a quick prayer, and then we'll go ahead and dive into the Word together. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. 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 So, uh, happy Valentine's Day to everybody, uh, unless you're not celebrating. And in that case, I'm with you. It's cool. Also, happy Transfiguration Sunday. I suspect there are more of you uh, on the Zoom call that knew it was Valentine's Day than knew it was Transfiguration Sunday. Although I could be wrong about that. But I'm going to talk a lot more about the Transfiguration today than I'm going to talk about Valentine's Day. The Transfiguration story uh, shows up in the liturgy. Uh, We we, uh, here at Genesis follow what's called the Revised Common Lectionary which is this three-year cycle of passages that follow the rhythms of the church calendar. And that church calendar has us just finishing this Sunday, uh, the season of Epiphany. And from here, we turn into Lent. Of course, Ash Wednesday coming up this week. And then we're into Lent. So this season of Epiphany is about learning about Jesus, about learning about Jesus's incarnation, specifically his humanity, his human ministry, what he did while he was here, and what we're to learn from that. And that all kind of gets summed up on transfiguration sunday so before i get into the second corinthians text we got to talk a little bit about the transfiguration story which is the text that steve read earlier so the transfiguration story is found in the three synoptic gospels it's found in matthew mark and luke and what's interesting is if you line up all three of those stories they're remarkably consistent which isn't always the case with the synoptic gospel writers each writer sometimes puts their own little spin or, or changes the scene that the story is given in and you'll see differences, but you really don't in this particular story. And that kind of consistency tells you that this story specifically is pretty darn important. So Steve read the the text from Mark earlier. Two years ago, I preached on a text from Matthew. And again, it's virtually identical. So you see Jesus taking three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, taking them up on a mountain. And while they're there, they see him transfigure himself into the full glory of God. He is revealing his godliness to them. And they describe that in terms of this brilliant, dazzling white clothing that he's wearing and this light that's emanating forth. And then he's joined by Moses and Elijah there. And you hear the big booming voice of God. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus is back in his human form. That's the basic tenets of the story. And it's an important story because it's it's the time where Jesus most fully reveals, as I said, his godliness to his apostles, just those three, but reveals it to them. And through the story, of course, he's revealing it to us. But that's not the text I'm going to preach on today. The text I'm going to preach on today is the Second Corinthians text, and in the lectionary, often you'll see uh, connections, you'll see threads that connect all three of those, all four of those passages. It doesn't happen every week, but for the most part, it does. So the question then becomes: Why is this particular text, the Second Corinthians text, chosen to be on Transfiguration Sunday? Well, the the key to it, I believe, is found in verse 5. And the version that I have in front of me says, For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. What we have to remember is that Scripture isn't our story. We often put ourselves into Scripture and think that Scripture is talking about us. We're characters in Scripture. Human beings are characters in Scripture, but really, Scripture is the story of God. Scripture is God's story about how God has created and god is moving in that creation to help restore and renew that creation as he has promised and so in this in this particular verse uh, chapter 4 verse 5 of 2nd corinthians we have paul taking the emphasis off of himself and putting it on god in this particular case remember when we're dealing especially when we're dealing with an epistle especially when we're dealing with a letter you have a specific person paul writing to a group of specific people the corinthian church in a perspe- pers- uh, specific time and context. And in this case, part of the context is that there are people at the Corinthian church teaching that are being critical of Paul. They're saying that Paul's gotten too big for his britches, so to speak. Paul's too big of a rock star, that Paul people are, are paying more attention to Paul than they are to Christ. And Paul's very specifically responding to that and saying, no, 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 it's not about me. It's not about my followers. It's about God. I'm taking the emphasis off of me, Paul, and putting it back on Christ where it belongs. And it's that flow that connects this story to the transfiguration. How does it do that? Well, it does that through the theme of light and darkness. If you look at this passage in verse three, that's talking about veiling sort of a blindness, right? Which is also mentioned in verse four, blindness. Paul knows a thing or two about spiritual blindness, about that kind of darkness, right? But also in verse 4, you see the, the phrase, the light of the gospel. And in verse 6, you know, you're letting light shine out of darkness, and, and that light is shown in our hearts, and it's the light of knowledge. And you hear all of these mentions of light and darkness in this passage. And realistically, those themes of light and darkness exist throughout the Bible. They're prominent in the Old Testament. They're prominent in the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is that those themes of light and darkness point us towards specifically Jesus And even more specifically, his incarnation. This passage from 2 Corinthians and the Transfiguration story and Transfiguration Sunday as a whole remind us that Jesus is the light which is good. Jesus is the light that reveals God to us. And Jesus is the light which comforts us in our time of need. I want to say that one more time because those are the big three points I want to hit today. Jesus is the light that is good. Jesus is the light that reveals God to us. And Jesus is the light that comforts us in our time of need. So let's dig into those a little bit, shall we? Jesus is the light that is good. That's going to be our first one. If you haven't had the opportunity, I highly, highly, highly recommend that at some point, maybe later today, maybe later this week, but at some point that you sit down with the first chapter of John and read that and the first chapter of Genesis and read that back to back because you'll find an amazing amount of overlap and agreement and through lines and threads that connect those two chapters and that's not an accident because the author of the Gospel of John is trying to reframe the creation event in light of Jesus's coming the author of the Gospel of John is saying that the light that was that was extant at the creation was Jesus and Jesus has now come in human form to inaugurate the kingdom to inaugurate that process of renewal and restoration of the creation that God describes in Genesis. I want to offer some examples. In John chapter one, verses one, four, and five say this: "In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it." In Jesus was life, and that life was light for all humankind. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Steve makes a great point that the word of God is Jesus, not the Bible. If you want to talk, if you ever hear somebody talking about the infallible word of God, the best thing to apply that to is Jesus and not necessarily the biblical text itself. All right, so that's John. The light shines in the darkness, darkness has not overcome it. Now let's take a look at Genesis verses three through five of chapter one. And that says this, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. One of the very first creative acts God does, and God creates through speaking, which is important. That's the word. That's Jesus. One of the very first creative acts God does is create light and separate light from darkness. That light is the life in Jesus. And that light is the light of all humankind. That light that exists in Jesus exists in all of us. And one of the very first things God says is that light is good. No matter how dark it gets at times, and it does get really dark and chaotic and crazy, Jesus is that light that lives within us, and that light is good. We can throw a veil over that light. We can throw a bucket over that light. We can dim that light as much as we want. What we can't do is put it out. The darkness cannot overcome that light. That light is always in each and every single one of us, and it is good. And that's important to remember. It's important to remember. It's hard at times to remember that, but it's vital. Jesus is the light that is good, and that light lives within each and every single one of us. Jesus is the light that's good. Jesus is the light that reveals God to us. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a piece called Meditation in a Toolshed. And that might be my favorite title of anything ever written in all times, ever. Meditation in a Toolshed. There's something about that meditative process being done in a dark, dank, dusty toolshed that just amuses the heck out of me. Maybe that's just me. But I love that title. And I think this says something important about the Christian faith. Because what, what Lewis was reacting to is this scientific idea that the only way you can truly say anything valid about a subject is if you're completely removed from it. You're completely divorced from it. You're completely pulled back and objectively looking at it. And that was a criticism level that the church saying that the church couldn't say anything valuable about creation. The church couldn't say anything valuable about that which science considered its realm because it was involved in this faith structure that automatically biased it. And Lewis was pushing back against that and he said look consider you're sitting in a tool shed and you're meditating right and it's dark there's no light in there except for the crack in the door that allows a single beam of light to come into that tool shed now if you're sitting off to the side there's enough dust floating around in the air you can see that beam right we've all seen that before you see that beam of light and looking at that beam of light tells you something about the nature of light now, this is the point where if I had like 45 minutes and I, I would drone on and on and on about the nature of light and how light's the only, uh, the only thing in the universe that acts as both a particle and a wave and it tells us the maximum speed of everything and I just get all physically nerdy and it'd be great. I would love to do that. I'm not going to do that because I would bore half of the room to tears and you would all start logging off. So I'm not going to do that. Hang with me. But light's a fascinating, fascinating subject. And sitting off to the side and looking at that beam tells you something about the nature of light. And Lewis recognizes that and says, yeah, that's perfectly valuable. That's okay. That's good. But guess what? Sitting in that beam of light reveals something as well. When you sit in that beam of light and you look along towards what that light is pointing you towards... You can comment about plenty about creation, right? Because you're going to see whatever's outside of that tool shed, whatever that crack in the door or that tool shed allows you to see, whether it's a meadow that's outside or a set of woods, or maybe you're on a seaside and you get to see the sea, whatever it is, is, you're going. it reveals something about creation to you by sitting in that beam of light. So looking at Jesus, look, we can look at Jesus completely uh, historically speaking, right? We can examine the historicity of the Gospels. We can talk about people like Josephus and Tacitus that wrote about Jesus way back when. We can compare the ancient sources that tell us about Jesus's life to ancient sources that tell us about life of other figures that we don't question at all. We can have that whole conversation. And for some people, that's really, really important. That helps lead them to faith to ground it in history like that. And that's fine. Looking at Jesus that way tells you something about Jesus and it's important and it's good. But looking at Jesus in a story like the transfiguration story, looking at Jesus as Paul asks us to do in the second Corinthians passage, take the, the, look, the, the focus off of ourselves and put it back on Jesus. That also tells us something. It tells us, it told the apostles, first of all, let's start there. They told the apostles that were sitting there and seeing Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. They couldn't tell what they were talking about, but they saw that that image of Jesus and Moses and Elijah and Jesus has been transfigured. And it tells them that everything that they've held valuable spiritually, all of their history, all of the prophets, everything that they've been taught over the course of their lives that is useful and good is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. That God's plan from the beginning, from Genesis, has come to its climax in this man that they are following. That this man is both a human being that they followed, and, it's, and he's God as well. It reveals something about God to us. Sometimes it can be really hard to feel like you know God, right? Sometimes God feels unknowable because he's so infinite and so large and so non-contextual. He doesn't fit in the context of our lives. And yet he became a human being. He was incarnated as a human being so that we would feel like we could know him. When we see the son, we see the father. What we know about God is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. The light that is Jesus is good, and the light that is Jesus reveals God to us. Those are the first two things. Everybody still with me? All right. Jesus is also the light that comforts us in our time of need. Now, now we come to the portion of the sermon where Dan tells two stories about his childhood that are potentially horrifically embarrassing and for which you all could mock me later on. I hope you'll be kind. I trust that you will. When I was a youngster, I was a wee bit skittish. It's probably an understatement, but I was. I was. I was also, fortunately, I was not smart enough to not put myself in positions where that skittishness would be taken advantage of. So I really had it going for me as a young young lad. Uh, But I was a big fan of the CBS sitcoms or the CBS shows, uh, Dukes to Hazard. I was a huge fan of that. And then Incredible Hulk was always on, usually like right after the Dukes, right? And for those of you under the age of 40, look, I'm gonna date myself a little bit here. You're probably not gonna follow me, just hang in there. You may not get some of the references, but it's okay. It's okay, you'll get the point, I promise. I was a huge fan. I wanted to watch The Incredible Hulk every week. And every week, my parents would try to talk me out of it because they knew what was going to happen because the same thing happened every week. But I was determined that each week was going to be new and different and I wasn't going to react the way that I reacted last week to The Incredible Hulk because what would happen is you had Bruce Banner, right? And Bruce Banner, when he gets upset, he turns into the Hulk. But the way that they did that in this TV show is they'd have this actor, Bill Bixby, and he'd have these yellow contacts in. When he got mad, the eyes would turn bright yellow, right? And then they do this weird fade into Lou Ferrigno all puffed up and steroided up and painted green and all this. Comes running in out of nowhere. Suddenly they were in a room. Suddenly he's running in from the hills. I don't know what's going on. But that was the transition, right? That was the transition from Bruce Banner to the Hulk. When his eyes would go yellow, I would get up every single week and run screaming from the room, scared out of my mind. And yet the very next week I'd want to sit down and watch the show again. My parents were just befuddled by my behavior. But I just it would freak me out. And that's a legendary story in my family because my young nephews now delight in the idea that they can go get you know, got those green plastic Hulk hands that you can put on. So they'll go grab those things and come running into the room screaming and yelling and thinking they're scaring the bejabbers out of Uncle Dan. And only because I'm a good uncle do I pretend to be scared out of scared witless when they come running. It's the only reason. It has nothing to do with any kind of latent childhood trauma. I'm I'm not scared anymore. <clears throat> I promise. But I tell you that story to tell you this story. 1983, again, I apologize to those of you under the age of 40. 1983, Michael Jackson is the biggest thing in all of things, okay? He's not just a music star. He's a cultural phenomenon. And he had just released the Thriller album, which is the best-selling album in the history of music. It's nearly double the next best-selling album. It's just the biggest thing that's ever been in the world of music. So he had released that album and now the video for the title track was coming out in December and it was a huge, huge deal. Everybody was going to be watching, right? MTV back in the day when they actually played music videos 24 hours a day was going to do the world premiere of this music video. It was going to be an enormous thing and everybody was going to be sitting and watching it. And I thought, you know, I had, I wasn't even like necessarily a huge Michael Jackson fan per se, but everybody was going to be talking about this thing. I had to watch this video. I was determined I'm going to watch this video. Now, for those of you who remember the video, it's like this big cinematic thing, right? I mean, it takes like five minutes before they even start get to the song. But in that opening, what happens? Michael Jackson's with his gal and he's eating popcorn. They're watching a movie and suddenly his eyes go yellow and he starts turning into a werewolf. And at nine years old in 1983, I'm suddenly a little kid again getting freaked out by the Hulk. And I go screaming out of the room, yelling my head off because I'm terrified. And for the next three nights, I would not sleep unless the lights were on in my room. Drove my parents nuts, but I refused to do it. I absolutely refused. I would not go to sleep unless the lights were on in my room. Because what would happen is when the lights would go off and I couldn't see anything, all I had was replaying those images that scared the bejabbers out of me in my head. But if the lights were on, I could distract myself. I could look at stuff around my room. I was probably busy reading books later than I should have been but I could distract myself and I could keep those images at bay. Now, what I didn't know then that I understand better now is that what that light was revealing to me is that I didn't have anything to be afraid of. That's what brought me comfort. And when I started trusting that, when I started trusting in that the existence of that light, when I started trusting that that light would always be there accessible to me, even when it was dark, even when the lights were out, even when I couldn't see very well, When I could trust in that light, that's what allowed me to start sleeping with the lights off again. And that's the kind of light Jesus is in our life because we're in really, really dark times, right? Both globally and personally that, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the political insanity that's going on, it threatens to overwhelm your senses at times. It just does. And besides that, there are people going through their own personal dark periods right now. We've all been through dark periods. There are some of us in the middle of one right now, and I hate to say it, but there are some of us that are going to be going through some very, very soon. And when that darkness is in your life and it's threatening to overwhelm you, one of the key things you have to remember is that light is always there and that light is always accessible and that light is always good and that light always points you to Jesus. That idea of the comforting nature of light is actually, it's so ubiquitous, it's its made its way into, into literary culture all over the place. Cassandra just mentions VeggieTales, of course, right? I've got a shelf up here of Harry Potter books. Anybody remember the Dumbledore line? Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. It's all throughout our culture, this idea of light being comfort. It's almost, and it's biblical it's very, very much biblical. Christ is the light that is good, and Christ is the light that points us to God, and Christ is the light that comforts us when the darkness threatens to overwhelm us. So as I said earlier, we're about to turn the calendar to Lent, right? The liturgical calendar, we're headed into Lent. Allie Lee, I believe, is preaching uh, Wednesday night for Ash Wednesday, and can't wait to see that. So what have we learned about Christ over the season of Epiphany? If Transfiguration Sunday is the end of Epiphany, this is sort of our chance to sum up. Yes, Reagan, I agree with you. Dumbledore is the best. Uh, we're about to sum up all of Epiphany on Transfiguration Sunday. What have we learned? Well, the last couple of weeks have been really, really interesting, right? We've been talking about this notion of freedom in Christ, that how much, how that's something to be given as much as it is something to be received, right? That freedom is revealed to us in the life and ministry of Christ. That freedom is revealed to us by Christ's light, that is the light of all humankind, that shows us what is good, that shows us that it is good sometimes to take the focus off of us and put it on to others. It shows us what God is really like. It shows us that God is love, self sacrificial love, that love that points us away from ourselves. And it shows us that God is in that darkest of moments, always there to provide comfort when it starts to feel overwhelming. That freedom in Christ. Points us towards God, the same way that Jesus is the light that points us towards God. So, as we head into Lent and ultimately into Easter, there are going to be periods of darkness. I mentioned it earlier. We even celebrate that as part of the Easter weekend, right? Good Friday, which is kind of a misnomer. That's always struck me as kind of odd that on this darkest of dark spiritual nights, we call it Good Friday. And it's difficult at times to sort of separate ourselves from knowing the end of the story, from knowing what's coming on Christmas and saying, try to really enter into what the apostles must have been feeling that night as they watch their master die and they think they think they're next and they don't know this ministry that they've been working on that think they're going to change the world. Suddenly, everything is up in the air. That's as dark as dark times gets. And we can identify with that feeling if we take it and think of the dark times in our lives. If we set aside for a moment the wonder and the celebration that is Easter and just enter into that moment, we realize we can identify very, very strongly with them. But Transfiguration Sunday and the season of Epiphany remind us that even in that dark moment, even in that darkest of dark times, the light was always there. Christ is there. That light reminds us that Christ is good. That light reminds us that Christ reveals God to us. And that light reminds us that Christ is always there to comfort us, even in the very darkest of dark times. If you look at what Will says in the comments, that's an important point. It's a very, very important point. Thank you, Will. The darkness will always threaten to overwhelm us, and it's always there. We live in a broken world. It's, it's. We've had dark times. We are in dark times, or we have dark times coming. But that's what's so important about a season like Epiphany and about taking the time to, to learn about Christ and to think about Christ and to focus on his humanity and his earthly ministry. God came down and incarnated himself as one of us so that we would have that light within us, that light that always points us back to God, that light that always reminds us that there is something good in each and every one of us, no matter how dark it may seem, and that light that reminds us that God is always with us to comfort us in our times of darkness. And that isn't just vertical, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. That light exists in all of us. God acts through the community. God acts through the church. Those dark times that you're experiencing, look, Satan's number one, attack is to try and take away your hope. And his number two attack is to try and make you feel like you're alone. That's the enemy's two biggest weapons, trying to take away your hope and try to make you feel like you're alone in that. And the response to that is to remember that there is always hope because that light is always there and that you're not alone because you're part of this community that loves you and cares about you and is willing to reach out and put its arms around you when you need it most. Jesus is the light that is good and that light is in every single one of us. Jesus is the light that points to God and allows every single one of us to find that connection with God. And Jesus is the light that is there to comfort us directly and through our community members when the times feel overwhelming and feel darkest. Amen. Time and time Amen. The age. Endings are a place where life is real.